All right, welcome to day two of our journey through Scripture. So far, so good. Today, our reading is from Genesis 2, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 16, and then Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18, and Psalm 2. So let's get into it. Uh, we left off yesterday with the creation of man and placing him, God placing him in the Garden of Eden, him resting him in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we said that this is actually a second creation account, a, a, a different view of creation, one that focuses on mankind and God's special relationship with us and our special relationship with one another. Uh, you recall from yeah, from yesterday, from Genesis 1, that God was constantly giving this evaluation of his creation. It was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And now here you have, it is not good that man should be alone, God says. So the first thing that is said to be not good is that man is alone. And so he sets himself to make a helper fit for him. Now this is a little bit of a tricky uh, concept to translate from the Hebrew. Uh, another way of uh, thinking about it might be corresponding to him. Uh, and yet another way, uh, which I think is uh, fairly insightful, is a helper like him and opposite him. Um, so in other words, there, some, the, the, the helper will be like the man in some respects, but will also be different. And of course, God then fashions all the beasts of the field, brings them before the man, and none is found suitable to fulfill this role. And so he causes a deep sleep to fall over him and takes from his side and fashions it uh, into the woman. And then uh, he brings her before the man, and, and the man says, "'This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh.'" She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is uh, speaks of this this close intimate relationship that uh, that marriage is that that the pairing of a man with a woman is. Uh, this is the, the the kind of the precedent, the standard, the ideal that God sets up here in creation before sin enters the world. It is good. Um, Note, too, how I mentioned yesterday with God's naming of everything, um, it, uh, that, that this is a sign of um, uh, authority. Um, here, the man uh, names the woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. This, of course, does not denote the woman's inferiority, right? They equally um, bear the image of God, but there there is a distinction here in uh in their roles, in what they are to do. Um, we see this also, by the way, spoiler alert, in the next chapter that I'm about to talk about, in chapter 3, where they uh, they eat of the fruit of the garden, and it is the woman who makes the decision to initially eat, right? She's the one who has the conversation with the serpent. And yet when God comes looking for them in the garden, he approaches Adam, not Eve. Um, so these are little hints that <clears throat> this this pattern for um, a re marriage relationship um, with the husband as a, as a sort of servant leader is established here at the very dawn of creation. Um, another way in which it describes their relationship, this close relationship, one bone and one flesh, 
um, is as naked and unashamed. And think about that, kind of makes us blush. Think about the ancient Hebrews, how they would have heard this. Um, But the idea here is the picture of intimacy, that they see one another, they see as they are, um, and they don't have to be ashamed with one another. They're they're comfortable um, being vulnerable with one another. And then comes one into the garden, uh, a serpent. Uh, He is described as crafty. And very interestingly, the Hebrew words for naked and for crafty are virtually the ident- are virtually identical words. They're not they're not completely um, they're not com- they're not complete um, homonyms, but they are very very close. And so the the idea is that the serpent's craftiness takes advantage of the human being's innocence, which is symbolized by their nakedness. Right. So um, he's kind of you could think of him as streetwise, and they are. Uh, new, fresh, naive. They don't. They don't know uh, things. And and he slithers up to the woman. And uh, this conversation is very interesting. <clears throat> you can actually draw a lot of insights by comparing uh, what they say that God said um, with what God actually said. You know, if if you if you compare it to to chapter two, uh, in that it teaches us about the nature of all human temptation. So for 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 example, uh, the woman. Uh, refers to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, not as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but as the tree that is in the midst of the garden, right? She saps it of its significance. Oh, it's just that tree over there. No, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Like not not really seeing the true moral nature of the decisions that we're making and, and, and what we call things, how we think of them is very... Um, uh, very, very important and very significant in how we navigate temptation. Um, also note that when she says what God actually said was that um, you shall not eat from the tree, neither shall you touch it, right? So he doesn't, uh, uh, God doesn't command them to, to, to not touch it, but here you have the woman making God's command seem more strict than it actually is. These are subtle ways that the, that the narrative is, is telling us um, about the nature of temptation. Um, but ultimately, the temptation comes where, where you know, the, uh, the serpent opposes what God said. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? So God is keeping something from you. You have the opportunity to, to be so much more, but you're going to have to do it outside of the parameters that he has set for you, outside of his commands. Again, uh, very, very much... Uh, paradigmatic, we might say, for all of human temptation. Uh, then she takes and she eats and she gives to her husband, oh, who, by the way, was with her, right? Adam has not appeared at all in this chapter yet. And he, we find here he is standing there as the serpent tempts um, his wife. Um, not not a very good image of, of somebody who is called to spiritually lead his wife. Um as a result, they realize that they're naked, their eyes are opened, and instead of being naked and unashamed, now they're ashamed and they cover up. And uh, this is the state in which all human beings exist after this, right? That, that all human beings in some way are hiding from one another, are hiding from God, um, because we all carry this propensity now. Uh, there is a sense in which every time that we choose to disobey the Lord, we are agreeing with Eve's decision in the garden, and Adam's decision in the garden. Um, 
note that scripture certainly views it as the the fault of of Adam. Uh, See Romans 5, for example. Uh, Then God comes walking in the garden, which is an extraordinary thing. In fact, this language of God walking among his people in a, in a, a special place is going to become language that is used for him dwelling among his people later on, that the Lord God walks in your midst. Um, so this, you know, just emphasizes this idea of the Garden of Eden as this special holy place. And God calls out, where are you? Um, and of course, the, the man tries to shift the blame to the woman. The woman shifts the blame to the serpent. Uh, and God isn't having any of it and produ- pronounces sentences over all three actors in here. Now, first, let's just talk about the, the man and the woman. So uh, they are given... Uh, consequences which correspond to their roles in creation, these primary roles in creation. So the the woman receives pain in childbearing and also in her relationship with her husband, and then the man receives pain in relationship to the ground, his 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 role as a worker of uh, the land, a worker. That now there's going to be conflict here. Notice too also these this is conflict with what they are taken from. So as the man is taken from the ground and his relationship with the ground is cursed, so the woman is taken from man and the, her relationship with him is cursed. And, um, and it's cursed in the sense that, right, your desire shall be for your husband, which is a good thing, right? But he shall rule over you. So no longer will he be a, uh, uh, will, will husbands tend to be good, competent um in their roles as a husband, as as spiritual leaders in their relationship, but they they might dom they'll, they'll domineer these these authority relationships will become uh, characterized by possibly even abuse and and um, and all kinds of haywire um, things that characterize sin. Now back up a little bit to chapter th- in chapter three uh, to, to the curse on the serpent. Uh, particularly, I want to focus on verse fifteen. So verse fourteen, of course, he God condemns the serpent to go on his belly and to and to lick the dust, to eat the dust. A very undignified thing. But then he says an int- something interesting, and this is the first real glimmer of what is coming in the Bible, kind of like setting the, the, the right, the conflict's been introduced, sin, is that this, the, the, the problem that God is going to have to deal with is, is introduced. And now here we are given our first glimpse of this, of the solution. So he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, so far we understand that pretty well. Uh, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So notice, by the end, time you get to the end of this this verse, uh, the offspring is is portrayed as true. The offspring is, all, in sense, all of humanity, right? Um, but then, uh, more specifically, it, the offspring is then depicted as a he, an individual, who will. Uh, bruise the serpent's head, although his heel will be bruised. So you can bruised, and you can see which one is a more more of a mortal wound, right? Would you rather be bruised on the head or on the heel? Um, so ultimately, this is the first picture of ultimate um, uh, victory over uh, over the serpent, over the works of the serpent, um, and uh, yeah. So th- this is what will unfold throughout the rest of the scripture, and this is the first time we're given a real glimpse out of that. 
the <clears throat> now uh, God also then exiles the man and the woman from the Garden of Eden. Notice that he exiles them to the east. Okay, so here movement to the east is movement away from the presence of God. Um, kind of uh, another bit of a spoiler alert, later on we will see that Israel's temple and its tabernacle had its entrance on the east. So if you kind of think of it as a co- as a compass, right? If you're walking to the east, you're walking away from the presence of God, away from the place where God dwells. And um, if you're going so, you know, technically entering the temple or entering the Garden of Eden, you have to walk west to enter the entrance on the east. But here, uh, movement east symbolizes movement away from the presence of God. Then in chapter 4, we get the, um, the familiar story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons. And they both bring offerings to God, and God favors Abel's offering. And I don't think it has to be too much of a mystery as to why that is. It isn't that God values animal sacrifices more than grain sacrifices. Both are legitimate forms of offering to God in the Old Testament. But if you look at the way it's worded, um, notice what—so Cain brought what? He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay, good. He's right to do that. And Abel brought what? of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So in other words, Abel brings the best of the best, whereas Cain just brings, you know, what is required of him. And so it's 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 God's uh, it's Abel's willingness to give God the best of what he has that makes God smile upon his offering perhaps more than he is pleased with Cain's offering. And this of course drives Cain to jealousy and eventually to murder his brother. And uh, as a result, he is exiled, note uh, verse 16, further east, further east of of Eden, away from the presence of God. And um, so what we see here is this uh, far from this, far from the eating of the fruit being a one-off unfortunate thing, this is now a pattern in humanity. It's, it's happening, it's happened again, and it's gotten worse, a lot worse, and really quickly. It's now murder, uh, instead of kind of hiding sheepishly from God when he says, where are you? Uh, when, when God comes to Cain asking a where question, where is your brother? He kind of snaps at God, right? Am I supposed to be my brother's keeper? How am I supposed to know? You know, and so everything, uh, sin seems to be not going away on its own, but getting worse. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew chapter 2 is uh, Matthew's version of uh, the birth of Christ. We saw yesterday the angelic announcement to Jesus's parents. So here is, um, here is, is Matthew's version uh, of the birth of Christ, um, where it focuses on the journey of these wise men, or as they're called in the text, these magoi. Uh, they're often called mag- magi, right? Um, and uh, these men come from the east to, uh, to, to worship the king of the Jews, and then they come to Herod, Herod the Great, uh, who is a very dangerous man. Uh, you can read about him in Josephus, for example. His character there very much uh, matches um, what is in Matthew. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's been appointed to be king over the region of Judea. Uh, of course, Caesar is the emperor, but Herod is given the the, the rule over the uh, the Jewish people living in this area, living in uh, Palestine, um, so special, specifically in the south there in Judea, and um, 
And of course, Herod hears these guys talking about someone born king, and this makes him nervous, of course. And he gives them this, oh, you know, I, I go find him. I want to, I want to worship him too. And of course, we kind of realize that he's got some other motives behind that. Um, they discern that he's to be born in Bethlehem in Judah by consulting uh, the priests and the scribes, um, who who um, uh, faithful to Matthew to Micah five two. Uh, see that the the son of David is to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Uh, and then uh, the wise men go, the Magoi go, and they they come to Christ, they rejoice, they fall down, and they offer him their gifts, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, and uh, you've got, a, you have another uh, kind of angelic uh, messengers kind of telling people where to go, just as they had appeared to Joseph and Mary. Here they appeared to the wise men, or it doesn't really say specifically they were angels, but they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they uh, pull a fast one on Herod and, and slip away by another route to go home. And uh, then, of course, uh, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and, and tells him to take the child and his mother to Egypt because Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him, and indeed he does. And um, uh, to and in a, in an effort to uh, to hunt down this this one born king of the Jews, has all children in the region under the age of two, all male children, uh, killed. Uh, now. One thing that I want to focus on here uh, is something very interesting, and this is uh, actually kind of dovetails nicely with Psalm 2, um, and that is Matthew's use of Scripture here. Notice that Matthew likes to talk about fulfillment of Scripture. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. It happened to fulfill, uh, or for so it is written by the prophet. Just like we saw yesterday in chapter 122, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the typical way that we think of prophecy in the Bible is that a pro- God, through a prophet, predicts that something's going to happen, and then when it happens, that is its fulfillment. So that is very straightforward verbal prediction, verbal prophecy, right? It very much is prediction. And I think one of the clearer ones that you do have in Scripture is the one that's cited here in chapter 2, Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there certainly is that. But there's another way in which prophetic fulfillment kind of works in the Old Testament. And uh, you can see this in particular with uh, chapter 2, verse 15, where he quotes Hosea 11, 1. So this was to this is their their flight to Egypt and he says this is was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go back to Hosea 11:1, 1, you would not if you were just reading it and didn't know that Matthew was using it this way, you would not see this as a prediction. What what God is doing in Hosea 1 is he's just re- recounting how he called the Israel out of Egypt and indeed uh, Israel is called God's son, little s son, in uh, even in the book of Exodus, right? Um, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, Pharaoh, let my son go. Um, and so this is just the uh, the Lord through the prophet recalling what he had done in the past. So how is the, so it becomes very apparent that this is not a prediction of the Messiah in that sense, but what it is is a, is a correspondence right, that Matthew wants to draw out between these passages. So, in other words, 
um, uh, there in the Old Testament, God called his son out of Egypt. And now here is God doing the same thing, calling his big S son, his true son, out of Egypt. Um, and so the idea of fulfillment here is more of a, a, a kind of a literary artful thing at the, in this sense, right? That it's, this is, uh, you could kind of think of it as like a, the gl- a glass literally being filled, where uh, at, at a point in the past, it's the glass is half full, but then with Christ, it's filled to the top. So this is, the, the idea of God calling his son out of Egypt is true enough of Israel, but it's ultimately true of Jesus. And that's the way Matthew, in his kind of first century way of mining scripture, is seeing things. Uh, you see this also, interestingly, in Jer- the, 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 the one, um, the, the verse that's quoted in, in verse 18, uh, from Jeremiah 31. Now, this is a very interesting one, because again, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are comforted because they are no more. And uh, this, of course, uh, does uh, is uh, about what's happening in Jeremiah's own day, where uh, you know there's there's a, a tax coming from the king of Babylon, and and all these things are happening. But if you go on and read the rest of the passage, uh, and and what's going on. Um, uh, this is actually a very, very significant passage in in Jeremiah, where you have, again, this weeping there in the north, in the land of Ramah, um, right? But then he starts giving promise of restoration, right? God's people were being judged back then, but now they're going to be restored. And in fact, it, go, it goes on, it, what Jeremiah 31 is really known for is the fact that this is the primary prediction of the new covenant coming, right? That God will make a new covenant with his people, he will take away their sins, and they will all know him. Uh, we will get into the idea of new, the new covenant, uh, obviously, further on into our, our walk through the Bible. Um, but notice, again, the, what Matthew is implying here. So, this cause of of weeping in Rama for the for the children of uh, of of uh, of Rachel of of Israel, right? Uh, especially the children of Rachel are would be the the Judeans, and they're living in the south. And um, but pr- right after that, the way in which that is healed is this promise of hope coming from God. Indeed, the promise that the new covenant is coming. So these are very subtle things that Matthew is doing here. And one of the things that that means is that the standard way of kind of viewing prophecy fulfillment is needs to be tempered a little bit, right? Like, if you were to ask Matthew, why do you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? I don't think he would have answered like a lot of people today might answer. Well, we read all these prophecies in scripture and he's the only one that fulfills all of them. He's the only one that fulfills all those predictions. No, the the reason why Matthew believed that Jesus was the Messiah was because uh, I mean, he he did on there there was some understanding that God would bring a Messiah from the from David and and there is obviously a a cohesion with scripture. But he walked with him for three years. He saw his signs. He heard his teaching. He was loved by Christ himself. And then most significantly, he was a witness to Jesus's resurrection. And that's how he knows that Jesus is who he says he is. And in that light, he's then able to go back into scripture and to say, um, 
okay, I, I see these patterns and I'm going to use these to craft my narrative, which actually helps to make a case for the historical reliability of what Matthew's saying. Uh, far from, from being troubling towards a, like an apologetic, a defense of the faith, this is actually very helpful. Uh, uh, because what that means is that Matthew is not trying to force to, to, he's not, he's clear, he doesn't seem to be making up events in order to correspond with promises from the Old Testament, right? Instead, he's got these events and he's got these passages that he's purposely trying to say, okay, which ones can I fit in here, right? So it gives credibility to the, to the his, historical reality of the events surrounding the birth of Christ, um, uh, and, and, uh, it does not look like he's he's simply making them up to you know because he he knew the prophecies and so uh, yeah so so I think that's a helpful way and we see this actually in Psalm two uh, which is our psalm for the day um, now Psalm two it's not a hundred percent certain but most uh, people think that this or I should say most most Old Testament scholars would say that this is a coronation psalm. So something that would have been uh, said on the day when the king is crowned in Jerusalem. Um, So why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and take, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, his Mashiach, his Messiah, his, in Greek, Christ. Okay, and again, as I said yesterday, this is a title for all of the kings of Israel. Okay, and uh, of course they. Uh, the, so you have all these nations who don't like the fact that a new king is being installed in Jerusalem, and then look at verse seven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, "You are my son." So this is the king speaking. Okay, and and that language of the king as the son of God. Look at Second Samuel seven, where the Davidic covenant is established. Today I have begotten you. So this is the day on which the king. The new king becomes the, 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 the little s son of God, the, the God's king in Jerusalem. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, and of course, uh, the end of the psalm ends, kiss the son lest, his, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you were to ask... To whom does this apply um, in the Old Testament times, right? They would have said, well, the king in Jerusalem, all of David's descendants, both good and bad, to, to one degree or another, this applies to them. But then with the coming of Christ, okay, this, so in a sense, it's fulfilled in them. But then with the coming of Christ, it is ultimately fulfilled. Again, that glass is filled all the way up. And as this was true, in a sense, to some extent, of all of David's offspring, all of the kings who reigned on the throne of David in Jerusalem, so this is true of the ultimate king of God's people. So this is true of, of Jesus in a way in which it was never it, it surpasses how it's true of them. Um, in fact, one might say that that this is a psalm of adoption, right? Where God adopts the king as his son. Uh, but God doesn't, interestingly in Matthew, go back to Matthew, uh, Jesus is adopted into Joseph's line, okay? We're told Joseph's genealogy, and he adopts Jesus into his line, so he's adopted into this 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 kingly line of Joseph. Of course, one might say that Mary also bears this royal blood. But uh, 
but he's not adopted by God. He is God's true son. So whereas the earthly kings, in other words, had true Davidic blood um, and were adopted by God, so Jesus has true divine nature, all right? He truly is the son of God and is adopted into Joseph's line. Okay, so uh, that's it for today. We will see you tomorrow. God bless you.